All right. Glad the throngs made it out here. It's good to be here. I'm Billy O'Connor. I'm 71 years old. Uh, I'm going to talk about writing. I'm going to make you a better writer. Why should you listen to me? Because you're all writers, especially if you're a comic. Uh, we're all writers. I mean, you between emailing and texting and Twitter, you're writers. Whether you're writing a, a routine in, in comedy or whether you're uh, whether you're writing a proposal, whether you're writing uh, uh, about your life, whatever, you're, you're writers. You're all writers. Now, the essence of good writing is to say as much in as few words as you can say. Less is always more. When you're in comedy, when you're writing comedy, and you take a, an hour routine that you got, you're doing a headlining set, and then you, you end up, you're in a contest like Tony is, and you got to do 10 minutes. Well, you're going to take 10 minutes of your best stuff, and you want to condense it. And the harder you hit in that 10 minutes, of course, the better chance you got of advancing or whatever you're going to do. You could take an hour of material and turn it into 15 or 20 minutes. But the, 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 the obvious way to do that is to be concise. You got to eliminate what uh, writers call meta discourse. Meta discourse is a fancy way for saying bullshit. You got to get rid of all the bullshit in your routine. And when you're, when you're doing comedy, it's good to write out your routine. Because when you write it out, you can move things around, you can look at it, and you can eliminate the meta discourse. For example, you see somebody on stage and they say, in my opinion, or if you're writing, in my opinion, well, we know it's your opinion. You're the one with the mic in your fucking hand. You're the guy who's writing the book. It's your opinion. We got it. Get rid of that shit. Get rid of all stuff that's unnecessary. Uh, there's a famous story about uh, Hemingway. Hemingway was a journalist who uh, was the first guy who wrote subject, verb, object. He wrote simply. He didn't write flowery like Somerset Maugham or all the writers of the times. He wrote simple, fast, subject, verb, object, and move on. That's good writing. He made a bet. He was in Sloppy Joe's and... and uh, um, South Florida, down in the... And he made a bet that he could write a compelling story with a beginning, a middle, of an end. And he could do it in six words. And of course, everybody at the table took the bet, and he took a cocktail nap, and he wrote on it, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. And he just threw the cocktail napkin at him. That's good writing. Be concise when you write. Uh, my favorite sentence, opening line of any novel, was Toni Morrison. When I was up at the University of Florida, I was getting my journalism degree at the age of 63. And uh, in journalism, they talk about the lead, just like comedy. You want to hit the stage. You know, when I first started, they told me, take your second best joke and open with it. Close with your best joke. Three minutes, five minutes, whatever you're doing. Because chances are the guy who's leaving the stage before you is going to be leaving with his best joke. So when you go on stage, you want to have a joke that's going to hit coming out of the gate. Well, it's the same thing with writing. The lead is the most important part of, your, of writing. 
because you've got one chance to get that right, the reader's attention. And if you don't get it, you lost them. So if that first sentence isn't good, nobody's going to read the second sentence. Now, the best lead that I ever read, when I was up in the University of Florida, I, I made a point of going to Barnes & Noble, and I used to open up the f first page of every bestseller just to read the lead sentence, see what their lead was. And the best sentence I ever read was by Toni Morrison. And the first line of one of her books was, they shoot the white girl first. Now think about that. They shoot the white girl first. That's six words. Well, what does it tell you? It tells you there's more than one killer. It tells you there's going to be more killing. And it tells you it's racially motivated. And it tells you all that in six words. And also notice you didn't say they shot the white girl first. She said they shoot the white girl first. And by putting in a present tense, they shoot, she puts you right there at the scene. You're there. They shoot the white girl first. Now, not only does it tell you all of that in six words, but there's no fucking way that you're not going to read the second sentence because she's grabbed you. That's good writing. Less is always more. Whether you're in comedy, whether you're, in, whether you're writing a book, whether you're writing a short story, the more you can say in the fewer words, the better writer you are. Having said that, the first draft of everything, whether it's comedy, whether it's a novel, whether it's a short story, is shit. Your first draft is always shit. And Hemingway said that too. Editing is what it's all about. Editing is not cleaning up after the party. Editing is the party. You have to edit. You have to get rid of meta discourse. For example, you say there is, there are, let's say there, there are a lot of people that like stand-up comedy. There is, there are. That's lazy writing. You don't need that. Why not just lots of people like stand-up comedy? What's with the there is, there are? You don't need that shit. Get rid of it. Get rid of all adverbs. Uh, adverbs are not your friend. Good writing is about verbs. That's what writing's all about. Verb is Latin for word. Verb, Latin, verbs are the engine that drives the sentence. You want to have explosive verbs. Good writing is about explosive verbs and specific nouns. And I'll explain that to you. If I said to you, the Dow Jones went down yesterday. All right, it's a sentence. You know what I'm saying? The Dow Jones went down yesterday. But went down is the to be verbs. That's shit writing. You want to get the to be verbs out of your writing. You need explosive verbs. What about... The Dow Jones plunged Thursday. Plunged, plummeted. The Dow Jones plummeted Thursday. That's a lot better than the Dow Jones went down yesterday. Be specific with your nouns. Uh, the dog ate his food quickly. No. The dog didn't eat his food quickly. As soon as you see an L-Y adverb, it means you used the wrong verb. The dog didn't eat his food quickly. Oliver gobbled his alpo. Always specific nouns, always exploding verbs. If you're on stage and you're telling a story, never reach for a cigarette. You reach for a Marlboro Light. 
I didn't get into my car. I got into my, uh, I slid behind the wheel of my Honda, turned the ignition and heard the engine roar to life. Why? Why Honda? Why Marlboro Light? Be specific with your nouns because specificity lends credibility. When you're specific with your nouns, it makes your story more credible. Same thing with your verbs. When you're writing and you write in school, you're always trying to sound like you're, like you're intelligent. You know, you always want to sound like you're, it's something that's ingrained in us when we're writing in school. We always want to try and show how smart we are. That's not what good writing is about. Good writing is about finding your voice, just like on stage. When you go on stage and do comedy, you don't want to do knockoffs of other, of other comics. You want to find your own voice. That's the hardest thing is to find your own voice. It's the same thing in writing. Find your own voice, throw it on the page, throw your story on the page, and just, throw, just you know, the best way to, do it, uh, to tell a story is just the way I do it is I just make like I'm talking to a guy in a bar and I'm telling him a story in my own voice. Then when you write it out, you edit, you edit, and you edit some more. Editing is about, is what good writing is all about. Uh, it's been said that there's three rules of great writing. Unfortunately, nobody knows what they are, <laughs> including me. Uh, my three rules are take the drink at an early age, uh, fall in love at every opportunity, and this is the most important. Never write about what you can remember. Always write about what you absolutely cannot forget. That's good writing. I don't know if you guys have, and girls are familiar with Diablo Cody. Well, Diablo Cody wrote Juno. And uh, what happened was she was sitting in a Starbucks. Juno's a story of a 16-year-old kid who knocks up a 15-year-old girl, and they made a screenplay about it. Now she writes for home, HBO and everything else. She's a very successful writer in Hollywood. And uh, she went to the same school I did, University of Florida. And Diablo Cody was sitting in a Starbucks. And she was working on a computer, and she heard a 16-year-old kid talking to a 15-year-old girl about how he knocked her up and what to do with the baby and everything else. And she eavesdropped. And she ended up writing a story about it. People don't want to see big blocks of narrative on a page. They won't read it. It's too intimidating. What people want to see is lots of white because when they see white, they'll read it. And dialogue can do that for you. You want to break up any long paragraphs you have. You don't want to use it. And a good way to break it up is to make every line of dialogue skip a, a, a line with, with your dialogue because now you've got lots of white on the page. If you look at the two best, most successful writers, men, male writers anyway, Today is probably Patterson and Grisham, you know, James Patterson and John Grisham. If you read Grisham's books or Patterson's books, 80% of them are dialogue. He's not really writing books. He's writing scripts. Uh, and on that note, I'm going to tell you a story that uh, I had written a screenplay. I come out of the University of Florida. I was 62 years old, and I had written a screenplay about the 1969 Super Bowl being fixed. And I went out and uh, 
I had a hook for a producer, a big producer in Hollywood, and I went and gave him my pitch. And uh, I told him this pitch of the story, and he said to me, he read the screenplay, and he said, you know, Billy, for your first effort, remarkable. He goes, now let me tell you something. This will never see the light of day, because it'll never get made. He says, because it's about the NFL, and it's too true. The NFL is never going to let this get made. As a matter of fact, you can get a bullet in your ear for this. He said, now let me tell you something else. You see all kinds of screenwriting classes all over the place? Forget about it. Who the fuck are you? What's your name? Rich. Rich, what's, Rich, Rich, what's the last name? Okay, Rich. Nobody knows who the hell you are. You go out to Hollywood with a screenplay. And this is advice from a big producer. This guy's got 15 Emmys. He produced uh, Murphy Brown. He just did not renew it for this year, but he did the George Lopez show. He did Don Rickles show. Uh, guy's got a lot of weight. Did three or four movies. And he told me, Billy, you're nobody. You write a screenplay, and if it's any good, and you come out to Hollywood, either Disney's going to steal it, or Spielberg's going to steal it. They're going to tie you up in court for 10 years. You'll be lucky to give you whatever they give you. Take the screenplay, write it as a book. Hollywood's just like comedy clubs. It's about money. Comedy clubs really don't give a shit how funny you are. They don't want you to bomb on stage. But how many fannies can you put in a the seat? They're in business. They're here to stay alive. It's the same thing with, with, with writing. Why should a producer be interested in something you wrote for a screenplay? Unless he knows he's going to make money. If you write a book and it sells, now they smell money and they, and they might make a movie of it, like Fifty Shades of Grey. That's a shit book. It's like, you know, Bondage 101. You know, you read the, I'm a writer. When I read that stuff, I, I read about five pages of it. And I say, well, this is shit. You know, a child could write this. But that chick made a shitload of money. Because it's sold. And once it's sold, they smell the money and then they, they want to do something with you. So back to exploding verbs and specific nouns. Forget about adverbs. Adverbs are not your friend. If you see an L-Y verb, you want to get rid of that. You want specificity. Always specific nouns, always exploding verbs. That's good writing. So after you've written a piece or you're writing, writing comedy, Go back over it. Look for all your to-be verbs. Is, was. Get rid of that shit. Get something hot. Give us something hot. Uh, whether you're doing comedy or whether you're writing, never use a cliche. You're wasting the reader's time. If you get on stage and you tell me something's hot as hell or it's cold as ice or it smells like shit, you're wasting my time. If you're too lazy to get a fresh metaphor, then you have no business being up on stage. You have no business writing. Don't tell me something smells like shit. Tell me it smells like prison laundry. Tells me it smells like somebody set fire to a pet shop. Take the time to write out your routines and then edit, edit, and edit some more. That's what good writing is all about. Uh... Never throw away anything that you've written. Maybe you've written something and you think it's complete crap. Probably is. But five years from now, you're going to be a better writer. It's the same thing with a comic. You write a routine. It doesn't hit. It sucks. 
All right, store it, but don't throw it away. Because five years from now, you're going to be a much better comic. And you might come back to that piece that you even forgot that you wrote. But now you got the confidence and you got the delivery to make it a better piece. And you write it out and, and you might have a, a good 10 minutes of material there that you had forgotten all about. So never, ever, ever throw away anything you've ever written. Whether you're writing for comedy, whether you're writing a book, whatever you're writing. I go back sometimes and, and I'm reading stuff and I'm saying, wow, that, that's pretty good. I said, Shit, I don't remember writing this. But now I'm a better writer. Now I can do something with it. Uh, same thing with comedy. And again, find your voice. I see comics, young comics, 24, 25 years old, and they're doing jokes about throwing a hooker in their car and a trunk of their car. And I ain't buying that. Find your voice. Be true to yourself. Because that's... Greatness never came through imitation. Don't be a poor imitation of somebody else. There's only one you. Be you. Find your voice. And when you find your voice, use it. Whether it's on stage or on, on, on the page. And I stress this. I can't stress it enough. When you write, write in your own voice. Don't try and write like you're an academic or you're smart. Never use words like fabrication. Use lie. Write simple. Always simple. Simple is always better than, 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 than polysyllabic bullshit. Look at the great sayings in history. These are the times that try men's souls. There's nothing complex about any of those words. And yet that sentence has been passed down from generations to generations is one of the great sayings in history. Simple is always better. Keep it simple. Uh, I'll tell you how important verbs are when you're writing. You're writing, you say, about one of your characters, say, he was mean. That's an adjective. He was mean. That's your opinion that he was mean. Writers show. They don't tell. You have to show that he was mean. And when you show, you don't use adjectives. Adjectives tell. So he was mean. No, let's try it with verbs. He slammed the door in the child's face. He kicked his dog. Those are verbs. We get it. This guy's a prick. Right? He's a prick. We slammed the door in a child's face and kicked his dog. Verbs show. Adjectives tell. Avoid adjectives. They're not your friends. Verbs are the deal. Specific nouns, explosive verbs. That's writing. She was busy. That's an opinion. You're not showing us that she was busy. She got up at 5 o'clock in the morning, fed her kids, did two loads of wash, drove her kids to school, came back, went to a PTA meeting, came back from that, did two more loads of wash, fed her children, read them a story, and went to sleep. Verbs, we get it. This chick's busy. Anytime you use an adjective to describe one of your characters, you missed an opportunity. Don't use adjectives. Again, don't use adverbs. The dog didn't eat his food quickly. He gobbled. You didn't, he didn't run quickly. He raced. Use verbs. You see the L-Y verb? You fucked up. He wasn't very sad. He was morose. Use verbs. Verbs show. Adjectives tell. Uh, 
You're a writer. You're all writers. Carry a pen. Number one rule of writing. Carry a pen. If you're a plumber, you'd have a wrench with you, wouldn't you? You're a writer. Carry a pen. George Carlin, one of our best, always used to write three words. You can always find a piece of paper, and if you can't, write it on your arm because it's your subconscious that does your real writing. You edit on the page with what you know about journalism, what we're talking about, explosive verbs and specific nouns and avoiding adverbs. But that's not where you get your ideas. You guys are comics. I bet some of your best bits came to you while you were in the shower, while you were just driving along and your mind was wandering. The stuff from the heart is the stuff you want. It's your subconscious that does the writing. It's the editing that comes later. But your subconscious is what does the work. So carry a pen because when, it, uh, when something occurs to you, wow, that's funny. Just write down three words that trigger it because otherwise you're going to forget it. Three words is all you need. Uh, famous writer once said that uh, he never had to change anything and he woke up in the middle of the night to write. Because when you're asleep, your mind is drifting and now your subconscious is at work. And it's your subconscious that's going to give you the good stuff. You know, when I wrote my first book, it was on my mind. And many times I'd wake up in the middle of the night and say, oh, shit, that's what that character should say. And all I did was write something on my arm or a pad next to my bed to trigger the memory. Because if you don't trigger the memory, it's gone. It's that simple. It's gone. I, uh, there's a famous story about a writer who was staying in another writer's house. And he got up in the morning and the guy wasn't there and he had to leave. And he wrote a note to thank him for his hospitality. And at the end of the note, he said, sorry for the long note. I didn't have time to make it shorter. That's writing. That's what it's all about. Never say in four words what you can say in two. Never say in eight words what you can say in four. And if you can get the reader involved, whereas... You can actually let him fill in the rest of the story. Well, that's even better yet. Let me see if I can come up with an example. Like, uh, there's a joke about a guy who hits, uh, who has a car accident, and he hits a midget. And the midget gets out of the car, and uh, he looks at him, and he says, uh, I'm not happy. And he says, well, which one of the dwarfs are you, you know? And guy says, well, when I got out of the hospital, you know, so you fill in the blanks what happened after that. You know, it's like get the, re the reader so involved in your work that he's almost finishing your sentences because it's just like an architect. An architect designs a building. It's not only about the building that he do. It's about the space that he's not using. And it's the same thing when you're writing. It's what you don't say is almost as important as what you say if you can have the reader fill in the, the blanks. Less is always more. Uh, don't get cute with your writing. Don't get cute when you're on stage. You got a line, you think it's funny, you want to force it into your story. No, just tell the fucking story. Even, it might be a cute saying, and you're forcing it in there, but think about it. Stories are like, like rivers. They're flowing. It's the flow of the story that's important. 
Even a diamond interferes with the flow of the river. So don't force anything in there. Just tell the story, you know, and, and tell it in your own words, and uh, you'll have a lot more success. Uh, do. All right. Uh, these are like five rules for writing that are important. Number one, is it my story to tell? You got to write about what you know. You know, I write about Irish drunks. I know about Irish drunks. I'm an Irish drunk. I'm not going to write about the black experience in Philadelphia. I don't know anything about the fucking black experience in Philadelphia. Write about what you know. Number one rule. Is your story going someplace? Where's it going? Is it too personal? Does it, so it won't affect other people. What's at stake? Always raise the stakes if you're writing fiction. I don't want to hear about the $60 that you stole from your roommate's locker in the sixth grade. I don't care. It's fiction. Embellish. Embroider. Lie. Tell me about the $50,000 that you owe the mob and you can't come up with the money. Raise the stakes. It's the same thing when you're telling jokes. Raise the stakes. Uh, similar to a 10-minute set or an hour set, you're telling stories on stage. Same thing when you're writing. Setups are going to be long. You know, they're going to be long. They're going to flow. But you, when you want something to hit fast, you want it to be concise. Three, four words. Punch it. You know, you want it to punch, just like your punch lines. You want them to hit hard, so you want to sharpen the spear so when it hits, it hits hard and hits deep. Uh, there's, a, there's a rule of writing. It's called the ABDCE rule. A-B-D-C-E. And what it means is start in the middle of your story. Don't start a story with, uh, I was born in County Cork, Island in 1948. My father lived in, no, fuck that. We don't want to hear about that. Give us action. Open up with action. Open up with three guys falling out of a plane. You can tell us how they got there later. But give us the action first. Action. Grab the reader. A is for action. B is for backstory. After you've given us the action, now you can fill in the blanks. How did they get there? Who are these people? That's the who, what, where, when, and why. That's what you want to give second. You don't want to give that up front. You want to always start with action. You've got to grab the reader. If you don't grab the reader in the first sentence... You've lost a reader. There's too, many, too much competition nowadays for a reader's attention. There's 5,000 things he can be doing, looking at his phone and everything else that goes along with it. You've got to grab the reader. That first sentence has to be your most important sentence. You can spend weeks on that sentence, but it's got to be tight, no meta discourse, no extra words, and it's got to grab the reader's attention. Like I said, D is for backstory. Now you give us the who, what, when, and where. D is for development. Hi, honey, honey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good to see you, Hillary. 
So development is, now you're telling us where the plot is going. Why are you writing the piece? You're developing your characters. You're telling us things about your characters. And when you tell us about your characters, again, less is more. Don't tell me he's got blue eyes and blonde hair. Okay, you can fill that in. But that's not important. Use tells. Just like in a poker game, people have tells. It's much more important if you talk about a character who's 77 years old and he broke his wrist rollerblading. That's a tell. We get it. This is guy 77 years old, and he doesn't want to be 77 years old. You're telling us all of that just by showing us that he broke his wrist rollerblading. Look for tells. When you're talking about your character, Dickens had a famous quote. He said that always give your character a wart at the very end of his nose. You want to make your characters unforgettable. So you want to give them some kind of characteristic that's going to stick with the reader. Uh, that's development. Now C, A, B, D, C is for climax. Climax basically means when your protagonist, when your hero or the guy you're writing about reaches his most formidable moment. This is what his challenge is because basically every story is the same. Every story that's ever been written is basically you take a character, put him up in a tree. And now once he's up in a tree, is he going to stay in the tree or is he going to get out of the tree? And then you can have people throw rocks at him to make it more difficult. But it's always about a quest. It's, it's, it's about whether uh, your protagonist is, uh, is he's looking for something. He wants something. And there has to be a character arc. Your character has to change during your story. Otherwise, your story is useless. Example. One of the greatest screenplays ever written is The Godfather. And it's got a perfect character arc. Because at the beginning of The Godfather, Michael's talking to Kate and he says, that's my father, Kate. That's not me. But during the course of the story, at the end of the story... He becomes his father. He becomes the godfather. So it's a perfect character arc. The character has to change. Otherwise, life is the same way. I'm 71 years old. When I was 10 years old, and you would have gave me $500, I would have went to a roller coaster. I would have been eating ice cream and spending the $500 on that roller coaster. I never would have left the roller coaster and ate ice cream all day. The dynamics of life change. I don't have the same desires that I had then. And neither should your character. Your character has to change during the course of the story. What makes him change? He wants something. Is he going to get to something? What's the obstacles in his way? Usually it's an antagonist, somebody else who's, who's trying to stop him from getting what he gets. And if you're interested in what he's trying to achieve, well, then you got the reader sucked into the story. That's climax. The most formidable part of his story, when he comes to that, to that do or die moment, that's the climax of the story. And the E is for the enumerant. And that means, what was the purpose of the whole, the whole story? And when you do a, a column, a newspaper column, they tell you about the lead. And again, I talked about the lead, how that first sentence has to grab you. And at the end of the lead, they'll have a kicker. 
The very last line of your story should sum up the whole story. That's the kicker. It's the same thing with a punchline and a joke. You tell a long story. What's the purpose of the fucking story? You're doing it to get the punchline at the end. That's the kicker. You have to have a lead and you have to have a kicker. That makes for good stories. I, uh... Of course, the ultimate lead is headlines. You know, a headline in the newspaper column. And I saw a headline about three months ago in the Daily News. And uh, it was really a good, good great lead. Uh, Jeff Bezos is suing David Pecker from the National Enquirer for blackmail. And uh, the headline in the Daily News said, Bezos exposes Pecker, which is a great, great headline. It's a great lead. It tells you a lot of shit. I saw one about 20 years ago when I was in New York. Some Bronx cops had found a decapitated body in a strip club. And the headline just said, Headless Man Found in Topless Bar. It's a great headline. It's a great lead. It's perfect. Uh, of course, the, the best headlines are always, Florida always wins these things. And I saw one in Florida, which has really cracked me up. It said, uh, man with syringes in his rectum says they're not his. And that's a great fucking headline, you know? I mean, man with syringes and rectum, not his. I'm pretty sure you got to own that one, you know? I mean, if you don't put them in there, at least you got to know how they got there, at the very least. You know, it's not like somebody found a nickel bag of pot in your car and said, uh, hey, God, that's not my, I don't know how he got there. I don't know nothing, you know? Or your wife finds a pair of panties. I don't you put a couple of syringes up your ass, I think you're pretty much going to own that one, you know? But again, the importance of grabbing the reader, the headline, the lead, it's got to be a great lead. Same thing in comedy. You get on stage. You want to hit with that first joke. You don't want to give four minutes of bullshit. I mean, Tony, after that first joke hits, it just relaxes you completely. You want to get out of the gate fast. You know, like I said, I was taught when I was started doing comedy that you want to start with your, your second best joke, especially when you only, you only got five minutes worth of material and you're just starting out. Well, you want, to, you want to hit with that first joke and you want your last joke to be the best because when you get off that stage... You want them to remember who you are. And also, when you get on the stage, the other guy might be leaving with his best joke, so you don't want everybody to get up and start smoking a cigarette when you come on stage or go out to get something to eat. You want to keep their attention, so you want to have something that's going to hit. You want to get out of the gate fast. It's the same thing in writing. Uh, when you describe things, describe things with all your senses, all your senses. There's taste, there's feel, sound. Sight. Use it all. You're a writer. Write. When you write academically, when you were taught to write in school, you usually write in passive voice. Never write in passive voice. You want to write in active voice. Now, what does that mean? If you're taking notes, write down this sentence. The sides of the hills were covered with trees. 
Write that sentence down. Take a couple of seconds. The sides of the hills were covered with trees. Now that sentence sucks. It's a shit sentence. The sides of the hills were covered with trees. Why? As soon as you see were covered, you just qualified the verb. You're writing in passive voice. As soon as you see were covered, you had a perfectly good verb. Why did you qualify it? What's the subject of that sentence? Trees. So why not trees covered the hillside? The sides of the hills were covered with trees. That's nine words. Why not trees covered the hillside? That's four words. And it's a much better sentence. Now, let's use an exploding verb and specific nouns. Why not sycamores blanketed the hillside? Now you're using four words. You've told the reader more than you told them with nine words because you're getting specific of what kind of trees they were. And you're using an explosive verb, blanketed. Let's use a more explosive verb. How about sycamores diapered the hillside? Now that's four words, but that's a good sentence. It's a lot better than the sides of the hills were covered with trees. It's a shit sentence. Whenever you see a qualifying verb, you know you're writing in passive tense. If that happens, you want to write in active tense. You want to take it, if you feel confused, just go back to subject, verb, object. Look for the subject of the sentence and then go from there. And then whatever verb you use, we'll try and find a more explosive verb. That's writing. Uh, writers and comics are like prostitutes. Exactly like prostitutes. First we do it for love, then we do it for a few friends, and now we're trying to do it strictly for money. That's the deal. Writers are no different than comics. That's the, that's the natural progression of things. We do it for love, then we do it for a few friends, and then we do it for money. That's the deal. That's what we're trying to do. You want to make money? You've got to learn the craft. And the craft is about work. It's about 90% perspiration, 10% inspiration. You got a good bit. It hits. Great. God bless you. You wrote a good bit. You performed it well. Write the fucking thing out. Put it out on a page. How can I make it tighter? How can I take that eight-minute joke, give the same amount of information, get the same punchline, get the same thing in four minutes? Right. Get rid of all the meta discourse, all the, uh, in my opinion, uh, varies. Twain said about the word very. He says, take the word very, and every time you see it, replace it with the word damn. And then your editor will remove the damn, and the sentence will be exactly the way it should be. It's a bullshit word. It means nothing. Like I said, you're not, he's not very sad. He's morose. There's a, there's a word for it. Use the English language. Use all of it. And listen to your words. your words. Your words sing on the page, or they should sing. There's a rhythm to it. Just like a setup has a, has a slow, gradual buildup. It's the same thing with your writing. And your punchline has short, staccato words. It's the same thing with your writing. If you want to create tension and you're writing, there's two ways to do it. You can withhold information to set the reader up. Uh, Stephen King's a master at this. He'll say something like, uh, that was absolutely the worst 15 minutes of my life until what happened next. 
Now you're compelled to turn the page because he's leaving you. He's withholding information. He's creating tension. That's how you create tension. You never want to say the word subtly when you're writing. Subtly is a weed. You want to weed that out, but what we call foreshadowing. And Stephen King is the master of foreshadowing. Foreshadow. Give your reader enough information to, 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 to figure out, but withhold enough information to add suspense, to make it suspenseful. That's writing. Every one of you guys out there, and lady, you got a story to tell. Every one of you. I guarantee you, you got a story that I want to hear. That's the story I want to hear. I don't want to hear what you remember. I want to hear what you absolutely cannot forget. Something happened in your life that you absolutely cannot forget. That's what you, write, what you want to write about. That's what you want to talk about. That's what you want to use on stage. Stories that you absolutely cannot forget. Fortunately, <laughs> I, uh, I've had a wild life between uh, gambling, drinking, and, uh, alcohol, drugs, women, I firmly believe that nothing succeeds like excess, you know? So I've got a lot of stories to tell because bad decisions make great stories. And I've made a fucking million bad decisions at 71 years old. And I'm sure you guys made a lot of bad decisions too. And they make good stories. There's always humor in your failures. Find out what that story is that we want to hear. And again, don't let it be too personal. Be something that that the audience can relate to. And uh, this way the audience will get sucked into the story. Uh, be bold. Be bold when, you, when you're writing. Be bold when you're on stage. Take chances. Fear has killed more writers than English teachers and alcohol combined. Be bold. Take the story. If it sounds like it's fucking crazy. Uh, my first book, Confessions of a Bronx Bookie, it's about sex, drugs, gambling, and a mob. Everything that made this country great. <laughs> and people read that book. A lot of people read the book, fortunately. And uh, some people come back to me later and say, you know, I believe this, but I don't believe that. I believe this story, but I don't believe that story. And inevitably, the stuff they don't believe is true. And the stuff they do believe, it's me embellishing. Why? How can you tell fact from fiction? Because fiction has to be believable. I'm not going to write fiction so my reader doesn't believe a word I'm saying. I'm going to make it believable. Fact doesn't have to be believable. And if it's a really crazy enough story, usually it's true. Uh... This is uh, George Orwell, his five rules of writing. Simple enough. What am I trying to say? What words are best going to express it? What image or idiom is going to make it clearer? Is the metaphor fresh enough to have effect? It's going to be a fresh metaphor. Again, avoid cliches. You're wasting everybody's time. 
And don't be pretentious with your writing. Write simple. Pretentiousness gives an appearance of solidity to pure wind. When somebody starts writing in that polysyllabic bullshit, nobody wants to read it. That's academic shit. I'm very big on dialogue. I'm big on dialogue for a number of reasons. I'm good at it, number one. And number two is it breaks up the page. You have to make the reader want to read it, and he's not going to read anything that's a big block of narrative. And they're going to, even the New York Times. And the New York Times, you know, is, uh, is, a, is, a, is a newspaper that appeals to, you know, people that are educated in this country. L.A. Times, the same thing. But even the New York Times never has more than three sentences in a paragraph. Pick up the New York Times, read it. Every three sentences, they'll break it up for another paragraph. Because nobody's going to look at a block of print and read it. We're just too lazy between Twitter and texting and everything today. Nobody has that kind of attention span. Which, again, is why Grisham and Patterson are two of our best writers, or most best-selling writers. Because they don't really write books. They write scripts. And, and the money, by the way, for a script, you can write five books and not make the money you're going to make with one script. So dialogue... Dialogue and more dialogue. And uh, good dialogue, you shouldn't have to say at the end of the sentence, he said, she said. We should hear the change in the voices. If you can read your dialogue and not have to, what they call attribution, accredit it to who, who's saying it, that's, that's usually good dialogue. Also, dialogue, like Diablo Cody, Good dialogue isn't, uh, how, hey, hey, Tony, how you doing? Good to see you. We don't need that. Good dialogue is something you would overhear in a bar and go, wait a second, what the fuck did he say? You know, like you'll, you'll eavesdrop on it because it grabs your attention. That's good dialogue. And on the attribution thing, just he said, she said. That's it. Don't give us any of that meta discourse bullshit where uh, she said dramatically, or he said loudly, no, that's garbage. That's you interjecting your opinion on the dialogue. That line of dialogue belongs to your character. Make that line of dialogue specific enough that your reader's going to know that he said it loudly or she said it dramatically. Don't insert yourself into the dialogue because after a while, he said and she said just disappears. It doesn't interfere with the reader. You don't ever want to interfere with the flow of the story. The story has to flow. That's what good writing is all about. Once you're sucked into the story, you want that story to flow. Uh, certain consonants, certain beginning of words, they have a connotation to them. The word C or K, you start a word with C or K, it has a harshness to us. What sounds, what sounds more dramatic? He moved the body or he moved the cadaver, the corpse. There's a harshness to it. Somebody's got power, okay, that's one thing. But if he's got clout, then we know he's got power. You know, you, C has a harshness to it. C and K, don't be afraid to use them. S, by the same token, you start a word with S, it has a connotation of meanness, nastiness, slither. Snake, slime, 
use the connotations of the English language. Use all of it. Uh, study the meaning of words, but listen to the sounds. A sentence has to have rhythm. After you write something, and if, especially with comedy, Jesus, especially with comedy, if you write a joke, Read it out loud. Read it out loud. Don't just read it into your head because when you read it in your head, that's your head. Your audience doesn't know what's inside your head. Read it out loud. How does it sound? The, the, the sentences sing. Is there a rhythm to them? You can use what's called uh, alliteration. Uh, let me see if... Uh, he clicked his heels and counted his blessings. All right, CC. Uh, when you use a series of consonants and put them in a, in a row, it's called alliteration. It has a singing effect to it, you know? Uh, listen to your words. See if they sing. If they don't, change them. Change your sentences. Yeah, now when I say write simple, that doesn't mean dull. Don't have your characters talk. Have them chatter. Have them bicker. Have them growl. Simple doesn't mean dull. Use the words that come to mind. And, and onomatopoeia is another tool of a writer. Onomatopoeia basically is you're using words that were formed because of the way they sound. Like cuckoo. Well, the word cuckoo, a sizzle. The word is formed because of the way it sounds. Uh, what sounds better? Fracture or uh, shattered? Uh, it's more forceful. Don't be afraid to use onomatopoeia. Uh, uh, let me see. Use the way, just use, use snap, you know, he snapped something, he cracked it. Use the words because they were formed for that reason. They have a sound to them, a rhythm to them. And that's good writing. You don't want to write bland. Now, just because it's simple, it doesn't mean it has to be dull. Uh, somebody talks a lot, or he, he jabbers, he yammers, he uh, complain. Somebody complains or grumbles, squawks, growls. Those are good verbs. He squawked, he growled, grumbled, not complained. Use onomatopoeia if you can. It makes for better writing. Use all the tools. The English language is a tremendous language because when the Normans invaded England in 1600, the English language was influenced mostly by the Germans. And it's harsh, it's blunt. But when the Normans came, 
it became influenced with French and Latin. And like, and, and Anglo-Saxon writing, original Old English, is always better. If you were drowning, you wouldn't say, aid, aid, aid. You'd say, help, help, help. Old English is always better. And that's what makes our language so... That's what makes our language so confusing and so hard to learn for foreigners when they come in. Because this, our language, the English language, is probably the only language that puts the noun before it puts the adjectives. Other languages like Spanish and, and Italian, they'll put the adjective first and then they put the noun, and that lends to make a short statement. Whereas the English language is more flowery. You know, where you're liable to... I, I, I went up and I met this big, strong, muscular, intimidating man. Whereas in Spanish or Italian, you'll just say man, big, or, or something along them lines. It doesn't, it doesn't lend to flowery language. But you want to use the Anglo-Saxon part of the language more than you want to use the Norman part. Avoid that because it's flowery writing, and we're not looking to write flowery. All we're looking to do is tell our story as simply as possible. And you want it to resonate on your, on your reader or your listener. Uh, callbacks when you're doing comedy callbacks if the joke hits you call it back later in your set it's the same thing with writing some of the most powerful speeches ever made like Kennedy's speech when he's in uh, Berlin talking about the Berlin Wall let them come to Berlin let them come to Berlin he kept emphasizing let them come to Berlin he kept calling it back uh, it's the same thing with comedy. Callback of a joke hits is the same way. Uh, oh, Churchill in World War II. We shall fight them on the beaches. We shall fight them on the here. We shall fight them there. He kept repeating it for emphasis. You can do that in your writing as well. When you want to emphasize something, don't be afraid to be redundant because you're not really being redundant. You're, you're emphasizing. Uh, clutter, we talked about before about cutting clutter, eliminating unnecessary words, getting rid of meta discourse. Sometimes clutter comes in phrases, comes in groups. The vast majority. Studies suggest that. Some would argue that. Get rid of all that shit. That's garbage. If you feel yourself getting lost in your writing, then go right back to subject, verb, object. Now, you don't always want to write subject, verb, object. Because you'll put the reader to sleep. Subject, verb, object, subject, verb, object. But if you get lost, go back to that structure. Subject, verb, object. But if you're always writing in subject, verb, object, you're going to hypnotize your reader. So the way to stop that is to introduce some of your sentences with either gerunds or infinitive. Infinitives. Now, gerund is basically a verb that you turned into a noun by adding ing. Running, skipping, jumping. You made it a noun, but it's really a verb by adding ing. Now, the only problem with gerunds is you lose specificity, and you always want to be specific when you're writing. For example, if I got up here and I said, uh, drinking is fun, gambling is fun, fornication is fun. Well, not everybody likes to drink and gamble. 
Fornication, you could probably make a case for. But, <laughs> <laughs> but not everybody likes to drink and gamble. So what's more specific? I like to drink. I like to gamble. You know, if somebody says to me, bowling is fun, I don't like to fucking bowl. It ain't fun for me. So you're being too generic. So you got to be careful when you use gerunds. But what they do do is they break up the rhythm of a sentence. Infinitives do the same thing. And all infinitive is to talk, to jump, to skip. All you're doing in infinitive, it's a verb form that you can use as anything but a verb. You can't use an infinitive as a verb, but you can use it as an adjective, you can use it as a noun, but you can't use it as a verb. Now, the only thing you got to be aware of is when you're using gerunds and infinitives is you have to have parallelism, what writers call parallelism. You can't put two gerunds on one side of a conjunction and then put an infinitive on the other. Like you wouldn't say, I like running, jumping, and to skip. I mean, that's just common sense. But if you read your sentence out loud, the rhythm of the sentence will tell you something's wrong with that sentence. If you have a conjunction, you have to be parallel with it. If you're going to use infinitives on one side, you have to use an infinitive on the other. Use a gerund on one side, you have to use a gerund on the other. Uh... You have to excuse me. I uh, have to refer to my notes occasionally. Yeah, uh, when you're writing and you're going from one subject to another or one paragraph to another, you need transitions. You can't just take the reader and smack them around. You, know? you, you, you need transitions. And on the subject of smacking around while I'm thinking about it, when we talk about specificity, that's clarity. If you want to have style as a writer, you want to have style on stage with your stand-up, be clear. Clarity is everything. If the reader doesn't, or the listener doesn't understand what you're saying, then you've lost everything. So you have to be clear. And uh, when you're writing a transition, you could say something along the lines of, you're leaving one paragraph to get to the next, and you could say, and then an interesting thing happened. And it's going to lead the reader into the next paragraph, because you're changing him around. But if you said, if I got in front of you and I said, and then he said to her that they weren't going to go to that party because of them. All those pronouns, he said to she said that they said to them, you're smacking the reader around. Be specific. Who said? Uh, Martin said to Clara that there's no sense of us going with them. You know, you can use a pronoun, but you can't use too many pronouns because it confuses the reader and you're smacking him around. Again, back to specific nouns. It's important. When you describe something and you're writing, describe a tree. Well, describe that tree that no other tree in the world could be mistaken for. Be specific with it. Tell everything you can about the tree. What did it look like? What did it, what did it smell like? What did it feel like? Use all the senses, all your senses when you're writing. Uh... 
Mm-hmm. When I talked before about being bold, never start a sentence with I think. It weakens your opinion. It weakens your sentence. Just put what you think on the fucking page. But that's, that's more meta discourse, I think. We get it. You're writing it. I guess I know it's what you think. Oh, this is really important. For me, anyway, it's really important. When you're writing characters in a book, you got to be androgynous, right? Because you got to write about male and female. I'm not a female. I really don't know how females feel. Sometimes I'll write pages and pages about my character, love interest or whatever. And what I do is I always have a woman edit my work. Have somebody from the opposite gender read your work. My girlfriend, she was reading a piece I wrote, and she says, there's no woman in the world that would say that. That woman would say, are you fucking kidding me? She'd scratch his eyes out. That's not how a woman would react. Well, I don't know how a woman would react. I can imagine how a woman would react, but I'm not a woman. So if you're going to, only a fool writes alone. You never write alone. You have to put other eyes on it. After you've taken a piece and you've tightened it up and tightened it up and edited it, have somebody else look at your work and have them read it aloud. And preferably, for me anyway it works, have somebody of the opposite gender read your work. Because if a woman's writing about how I'm going to feel as a man, chances are she really doesn't know how I'm going to feel as a man. Any more than I know how she feels as a woman. So for me, that works really good. I recommend it highly. Not just have somebody else read your work, but have somebody of the opposite gender read your work. Surroundings when you're writing, and you're writing, describing the surroundings around somebody, that's another character. If you, you can have t- tells, if you've got a guy who's writing, who's, who's trapped in a, an office job, and he's behind a, a screen, and he's stuck in an office t- 12 hours a day or 10 hours a day or whatever, and you're writing about his surroundings, well, you can tell us a lot about the character by what's inside his little booth. Suppose he has pictures of the Grand Canyon or he has pictures of Rome, pictures of Greece or sailboats. We know that this guy's not happy in his surroundings. And you're not saying that. You're using your environment to create that. You're you're telling the reader a lot about this character and you're showing it and you're not telling it. And you're doing it by making the environment part of the story. Uh, Say a guy's with a woman, he always wanted a kid. Well, you don't have to say he always wanted a child. You could have him sitting in a playground staring at children. Not like Jonathan Gregory, not creepy. <laughs> but you could have him looking at children and or spending a lot of time and ball fields and stuff like that looking at children. And we get it. This guy wants kids. You know, because you can make your environment part of your part of your story. Don't just pick your environment randomly randomly. Pick your environment to uh to aid and, and embellish whatever, whatever part of the story you're trying to tell at the moment. 
conflict. Your story. Hey, Jack, how are you, pal? Your, con- your story. You have to have conflict to have a story. You can't write a story unless there's something going on that's stopping your protagonist from getting what he wants. Now, conflict comes in many forms. It can be man versus man. It could be I got a I got a I got a hard on for Tony and I want to uh, and, and I and I want to punish him. You know, it could be man against man. It could be man against society. It could be man saying uh, I want to change these uh, these abortion laws. I want to change it. It could be man against society, but he has to have a quest. It could be man uh, versus nature. It could be man saying that he's pissed off about the, what they're doing to the environment. And then again, one of the best ones, and the one I use all the time, is inner struggle. It could be man against himself. Man trying to overcome his own fears. Man trying to overcome uh, his shitty upbringing. Uh, that's conflict. You can re- create conflict without even having another character. Man versus himself is a powerful tool for writing. It's been said that every, uh, every story that's ever been told has already been written. There's a lot of truth to that. Shakespeare basically is boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. You can read every Shakespearean play and it's pretty much the same thing. Boy, get, boy meets girl, boy gets girl, boy loses girl. Every story's already, it's how you tell the story. So again, this is where your own voice comes in. Tell the story like nobody else could tell it. And the only way you can do that is by using your own voice. Uh... Talking about Shakespeare. Somebody who doesn't know how to write is going to say this, the secrecy becomes very damaging to Hamlet. No, the secrecy cripples Hamlet. Always explosive verbs. Uh, One of the most powerful sentences I ever read Actually, I wrote this sentence, and it's one of the sentences I'm most proud of. It was for Veterans Day, and I was in Florida. No, it was, I'm sorry, it was Thanksgiving, and I was in Florida, and uh, the girl I was with, living with at the time, she went home, and I decided, because I'm a veteran, I was in Vietnam, I said, you know what? It's Thanksgiving. I'm going to go over to the Veterans Hospital and visit somebody uh, who doesn't get any visitors. So I went up to the desk and I said, I want to see somebody who doesn't get any visitors. And she put me in a room with a guy who had no legs and he was in a coma. He had tried to kill himself. And uh, he put the bullet to his head and he didn't kill himself. Instead, he's in a coma. And he had been like that for two, three years. So to take advantage of the visit, I wanted to write a story about him. And the sentence I wrote, which i really proud of the sentence, he says, he looked at the place where his legs used to be and decided there was worse things than dying. Now that's a powerful sentence. I'm taking a bow here, but, but, but it's a powerful sentence because it shows you the predicament this guy's in and why he wanted to kill himself. And he does it with a few words. It's not a big flowery paragraph. It just tells you right away, this is, this is what happened to this guy and why. 
Less is always more. Always. I, uh, I became that kind of a writer, tacit, concise. Because when I was in school and I was getting my journalism degree, I started writing for the local paper. And the alligator, called the independent alligator, went out to about 50,000 people. So my column went out to 50,000 people every week. And when you're writing for an audience, just like when you're performing, you want to get it right because it's going out once and you want it to be, you want it to be good. So they gave my column a thousand words. I had a thousand words to tell my column. That's, that's what I had. That's what they give you. They give you inches in, in, in journalism. They didn't give me a thousand words. They gave me 12 inches, which was a thousand words. And I'd write a story. And it would take me 3,000 words to tell the story. Now my challenge became, how can I get those 3,000 words down to 1,000 words and not lose content? And I'd write the story in about an hour and a half. Because it'd be something that was on my mind, I'd just throw the story on a page. Well, it would take me a week of editing. And I'd get the story down to maybe 1,400 words. And I said, I gotta, I gotta lose 400 more. And then it'd take me another, and of course, the less words I was using, the harder it got to get the meta discourse out. So it became like a game after a while. You know, that I didn't want to lose content, but I had to get it within a thousand words. But what happened was over the course of those two years that I was writing that column, it made me a much, much better writer. So my first book was written like that, concise, tight, tight, tight. And each chapter was self-contained. It had a beginning, you know, it had a, a, a lead and a kicker. Because I noticed that today's generation, they don't really have a great attention span. No knock on you, honey, but they, you know, between Twitter and texting and everything else, they don't have great attention spans. So you've got to give them what they want and give it to them fast. Subject, verb, object, subject, verb, object. So I kept cutting it down. It became like a gain. And then I wrote my second book, The Mick. And after I wrote it, I edited it. And then I was reading it and I said, you know, I don't know what it is about the second book, but it just doesn't do it. It's, it's not doing it for me. It looks like two different people wrote this book. And then it dawned on me. The first book I wrote because it was, I wrote it from a series of columns that I had written because I was writing uh, about a bookie when I was writing my column. And the second book I didn't, it was a story. And I said, well, it sounds like two different voices because it is two different voices. Because I didn't take time to edit every chapter. The first book took me a year to write and a year and a half to edit. Editing is not cleaning up after the party. Editing is the party. It's about the editing. Same thing with your comedy. Once you wrote it and you got a hit, you, gotta, you can make it better. You can always make it better. Write it out and get rid of anything that, that you don't need to tell your story. And you got visuals, you know, like uh, when you're on stage, sometimes visuals can, can do what words can't. And it makes you funnier. It makes it, makes it hit harder. All right. I don't know what else I want to talk to you about. Anybody got any questions? No? Again, like you, you know, you're not going to write something like, uh, he had a large ego. 
No, let the guy say, nobody in this town is as good as I am. Show it. Don't tell it. Always show, don't tell. Less is more. Write in your own voice. Always carry your pen. Write about what you know. Throw it on the page. Let your, let your subconscious do the writing and edit it later. Your brain edits, your heart writes. Write it with your heart. Edit it later. That concludes the lesson, I believe. I don't think there's uh, too much more I want to say. What's that? Oh, good. I didn't even see you over there. How are you, darling? That's all right. What's the question, dear? That's a great question. Yeah, you know, some writers don't. Some writers, uh, they start writing and let their characters, they don't know where they're going to go. I don't have that gift. And by the way, if a book sounds intimidating to you, remember, a page a day. You write a page a day, that's 365 pages at the end of a year. Now, it might take you another year to take that 365 pages and knock it down to 220 pages that are worthwhile, but that's a book. But what I do and how I do it is I know I got a lead. My, well, I'll give you an idea. My, my second book, I got a lead. I know I got a strong lead that's going to grab the reader. And I know where my ending is. And the way I do it is I take the chapters that I want to use and I write three words about each chapter so I know what the chapter is. Uh, Billy, Billy gets drunk at 9-11. Uh, uh, his, his wife leaves him. Uh, you know, just when I know what the chapter's going to be out, and I put them on index cards, and I lay them all out on the floor. I believe that's how the guy wrote Game of Thrones. He had that whole deal, all the, all the different kingdoms in front of him. I, I just put it on index cards, and maybe I'll have 40 or 35 index cards. And I'll look at the index cards, and I'll see how I want the story to flow. And then I'll move the index cards to how I want that, that flow to happen. And once I have them chapters, then I'll embellish on the chapters. Another thing is, don't waste your time editing what you're not going to use. When you're writing a story or a book, first you're going to look through a telescope, the overall picture of the, of the, of the story. And that's why I like the index cards, because I'm only using three words. But I know what each chapter is going to be in my mind. After I got the thing laid out, then you write with a microscope. Once you've got the chapters laid out, and you know you're going to use those chapters. Then when you're writing each chapter, you know those chapters are going to be in the book, and you're not wasting your time. The first book I wrote, I wasted countless hours editing stuff that I never used because I didn't look through a telescope first. First the telescope, then the microscope. Uh, but like I said, my, my, my second book is about a guy. He wakes up in bed, and uh, he finds a prosthetic leg in his bed. And he doesn't know how it got there, because he's on a four-day drunk. Well, that's a tell. As soon as he wakes up in bed with a prosthetic leg in his bed and he doesn't know how it got there, we know this guy's a drunk. You know, he's in, he's in Australia for four days, he's drunk, and he doesn't remember shit, but he's got a prosthetic leg in his bed. And that starts the story. 
uh, my first book, it opens up with uh, the very first line of the book is the lead. And the lead just says, lost causes are the ones we pray for the hardest. And then the kicker, the very last line of the book, after this guy has taken his journey, he's a drunk, he's a gambler, he's a womanizer, he's lost completely. Well, the book is about not only all the womanizing and the whorehouses and all the fucking places he's been, which I know well, but it's how he found his way back. So the last line of the book, he says, I realized that that singular moment that St. Jude was right after all. There's no such thing as a lost cause because it ties up the whole story, the kicker, the lead. It wraps it up neatly in a nice little ribbon. And then that's the importance of the lead and the kicker. But that's a good question. Yeah, a lot of writers are able to do that. They just let their characters take off. One of my favorite writers, uh, he writes about New Orleans all the time, you know, like uh, two different styles of writing. He's a very f- uh, flowery writer. Uh, and then there's other writers that I, that I learned from. James M. Cain writes concise. He writes tight. Uh, good writers borrow. Great writers steal. If you don't have time to read, you don't have time to write. If you want to do comedy and you don't want to look at other comics, then you ain't never going to be a comic. But you're not stealing their material. I read this guy, James Lee Burke, who's one of my favorite writers, right? He writes very flowery, but he uses great fucking verbs, right? Now, when I read Burke, I'm stealing. I'm not stealing his material. I'm not stealing his story. I'm stealing his verbs, because he uses great verbs. That's not stealing, that's learning. You learn, like when I wrote The Mick. I'm writing about 9-11, and I'm thinking to myself, all right, I was at 9-11, it was fucking horrible. 9-11 made Vietnam look like a day at the beach. You know what I mean? We were peeling guys down there, man. Like we were moving rubble, we were just like the cartoons when you see steamrollers going off a guy, we were peeling guys. The smell, I've been, I bet I was fireman for 20 years in the South Bronx in Harlem. When we smell a burnt body, you know, I've been, I mean, we were doing 17, 18 runs a night, active fires. And we, we smell a burnt body. We call them roasts because otherwise you can't deal with it. You need a euphemism. You know, it's just like in Vietnam, they call the enemy the gook. And in Germans, they, uh, in Germany, they call them the kraut. And in Japanese, you know, Japan, they, they give them a euphemism because you don't want to deal with what you're actually doing. So we call them roasts. But 9-11... When you smell burnt flesh, by the way, let me tell you something. It's very difficult to believe that man is the highest order of things after you smell what, what, it's, what a roast smells like. You can't get it out of, your, out of your mouth for days and days and days. You can drink all the whiskey you want. It just lingers for days. But at 9-11, we'd move a little bit of rubble and just go, oh. The smell was like, because this was rotten flesh that was buried for seven, eight, nine days. It smelled like foul chicken. Right? It was a smell that you couldn't get out of your nose. So I wanted to write about 9-11. And I'm thinking about who, who writes about desolation, hopelessness. And I thought about the Yukon. And I thought about Jack London. You know, and he always writes about the Yukon. And I thought about Robert Service. His poems are always about the Yukon. 
because it's the same sense of hopelessness, despair. Uh, you know, it's like it's nothingless. So I read, reread their stuff so I could steal their verbs. I'm not stealing their stories. I'm stealing their verbs. Good writers borrow. Great writers steal. I'm not a great writer, but I will be. <laughs> uh, I've been kind of fortunate. The first book, Confessions, I, uh, Stevie Van Zandt from the East Street Band and the Sopranos uh, read it and they started pushing it for me. And now my second book, I got a shot in the movie. I got a producer that's, uh, that's interested that might make it into a movie. And I wrote this. This was a script. I had written a script about 9-11. And I took that producer's advice to tell me, Billy, forget about scripts. Who the hell are you? Write a book. If it sells and people feel smell the money, now they're making a movie. So I'm passing on that piece of advice to you. Any other questions? No, we good? I don't think I got too much more to say. Let me take a quick look at my notes. When you're writing about uh, food, who was it? Uh, Ian Fleming wrote all the James Bond novels. He always said, have your characters. If they're going to eat, have them dine in expensive places. If they're going to drink, have them drink the best stuff. You know, if they're going to ride a car, have, have them an expensive car. I don't write like that because... That's not my life. You know, I, I was a beat-around guy from the Bronx. I don't know too much about writing good. But if you're going to write about food, there are five elements of taste, right? Sweet, sour, hot, bitter, and salty, right? Is it hot? Is, is it bitter? Is it sweet? Is it sour? Is it salty? But now, there's five elements of texture that can go along with it. Is it crispy? Is it crunchy? Is it chewy? Is it soft and silky? In the marriage of the two lies description. Smell, taste, touch, sound, use everything when you write. I think that's it. Anybody else got questions? Was I too brief? I don't know how long I've been up here. But I think I pretty much said everything I want to say. Let me see if I got anything on it. No, I think that's about it. Any questions? No questions? We're good? Well, I, hope, uh, I hope you got something out of it. I don't know if you're willing or not, but uh, if you follow those rules, these are tenets of journalism. They're rules of journalism. They have to make you a better writer if you follow those rules. Forget about the adverbs. Forget about your adjectives. They ain't your friends. Explosive verbs, specific nouns. All right, I've been Billy O'Connor. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for coming out. And good luck on all your endeavors. I hope you write the next bestseller. I just hope you write it after I get mine out. <laughs> All right. Thank you.